Good evening, everyone. Oh, come on, that was rubbish. I've been waiting like four weeks to hear that. Okay, good evening, everyone. Yeah, good evening. Um, it's really, really great uh, to be here. I've been, I've been looking forward to coming back to OPC for quite a while now to um, teach this evening. For those of you um, who don't know me, uh, my name is Chris Allen, and this is my home church. Um, as Gary says, I now live and work up on the North Coast, uh, and that is just wonderful. Uh, but there is, I suppose, no place like home. Um, this church did play a really formative part, a, a formative role in my faith, um, in my journey of following Jesus. It provided a space for me to exercise some giftings in music and in speaking and in serving young people. And I think even in this very space uh, that we're sitting in now, there's been some very significant moments for me and my faith uh, along the way. But uh, I'm not here just to reflect um, or to take you on memory lane or anything tonight. We are uh, coming to God's word to Psalm 139. If uh, you were hoping for some visuals up on the screen, uh, I'm sorry, I don't have a fancy PowerPoint. Um, I also don't have any really well-crafted or snappy points that you'll be able to recount perfectly tomorrow morning. Rather, what I would love to do tonight is to move through this Psalm with each one of you from beginning to the end. Um, I wonder, could I ask, could the lights come up just a wee bit? Because I would love it if you've got a Bible with you or if you reach forward into the pew in front of you or if you've got a phone, search up on Google Psalm 139. Because what I wanna do is, is move through this Psalm from beginning to end. And as we do that, my prayer, of course, is that we would hear God speak clearly through it. We'll read it in just a moment, but by way of context, I suppose all I can really tell you is that David is the author. The shepherd boy who God chose to anoint to be his king over Israel, author of so many of the Psalms, but as to when this one was written, it's a bit up in the air and it's unclear. What we can tell though is that there is a really clear message that runs through this Psalm. David wants us uh, to know that God is searching him and knowing him. God searches him and knows him. The Psalms topped and tailed with these two phrases. O Lord, you have searched me and known my heart in the beginning and at the end. It's a fresh, Lord, search me and know my heart. There's that declaration of the past and this invitation for the present of being known by the Lord. And that's something that David wants to drive home. Um, so we'll read it all 24 verses of it, and we'll start then naturally at verse one of Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall overcome me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. 
for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. Let's pray together uh, before we come and look um, at what God has to say. Jesus, we thank you for uh, the words um, of Psalm 139. Uh, We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit now uh, for each one of us to uh, clear our minds of distractions and things of the world and help each one of us to hear clearly from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Do you understand what I mean if I tell you that I'm not really, by default, a Psalms person? What I mean by this is that there seems to be people in my life that if there's a reason to celebrate, they'll read a psalm. If there's a reason to mourn, they'll read a psalm. If they wake up in the morning, they'll read a psalm. If they go to bed at night, they'll read a psalm. And rightly so. The psalms are so wonderfully diverse. There is perhaps a psalm for every occasion, allowing God to speak his truth into our lives for me, I was initially a bit nervous uh, when asked this, or to speak as part of this summer series in the psalm. I thought, oh no, I'm not really a psalms person. Give me an Old Testament story, give me some New Testament teaching or something like that, I'd be more comfortable. Because psalms are tough. I'm in the category of people who would struggle to interpret or be patient enough to read poetry and bring out the deeper meanings and interpretations. And I think there's something similar in the psalms. I know it's God's word, I know it's useful, I know it's helpful, but it takes time, it takes perseverance to really find the blessing and the truth within it. Long story short, I have really valued the time spent in preparing for this tonight. I've spent a lot of time in this particular psalm, I've been feasting on it, I've been sitting with it, uh, and sadly you guys are only going to get the scraps of the feast that I've been having Uh, But be open to what God's going to say through his word. and Hopefully it blesses your hearts this evening. So we're going to jump in. Uh, We're going to break this psalm up into four different sections, looking at how God knows you, how God is always with you, how God made you, and how God hears you. Hopefully they are snappy enough for you to follow along. God knows you. And keep following along as we go. Opening six verses of these Psalms, they emphasize the intimacy with which God knows you. David is saying, God, you have searched me and, you know, and you've known me, and it's clear how deeply you know me. It is amazing that the God 
of heaven and earth searches us and knows us. When you look again at some of the details that David talks about, that first part of verse two, and you know when I sit down and when I rise up. That first part of verse three, you search my path and my lying down. Any movements that David makes, the Lord knows it and sees it. That second part of verse two, you discern my thoughts from afar. Even though God is far away from David, he can still make out and understand all of David's thoughts. That second part of verse three, you are acquainted with or you are familiar with all of my ways or everything that David does, the Lord is familiar with it. And lastly, in this little bit, verse four, even before David speaks, the Lord knows it. The Lord undoubtedly knows David far better than anybody else on the earth. The Lord knows David far more than David knows himself. And the prospect of David knowing all this could land one of two ways, couldn't it? It could be a really worrying, a really potentially guilt-ridding thing to know that God literally knows everything about him. He sees all of the really sinful things that are done in private just as much as all of the public things too. But this isn't a guilt-ridden psalm. Get that in your head right now. This is a positive psalm. This is one of celebration, one of praise that God cares for David so much and knows him deeply. You see this even as David talks in verse five about God hemming him in, that vision or that picture of protection. It's before and it's behind. This isn't David being sad that God knows all of the details about his life or even that David is restricted by the fact that God hems him in. God deeply cares for and knows David. And his words in verse six affirm this. Knowing these things is too wonderful for him to even try and understand. I'd suggest that there's nothing that David can think, say, or do in his life which is gonna surprise God because God knows him that deeply. Now, the, the friendships and the relationships that you have in your life, I'm sure, are close and are deep. But I wonder, can you see from just these first six verses of this psalm that God knows you even more deeply than any humanly relationship you might have? And like I say, this isn't meant to make you feel worried or, or heavy at what God knows about your life. David confesses this is how well God knows him. So think of how well God knows you. And even consider the fact that God knows each of the eight billion people in this world so deeply and so intimately. You are not just a number to God. You will never have to come to him and remind him of your name like we do sometimes uh, in the relationships we have. If you feel like God sometimes feels really far away or is disinterested, or if he cares more about other people instead of you, you can forget that because God knows you. He cares for you deeply and he knows you intimately. If you want a Bible passage to go and look at later on, consider the woman at the well in John 4. Jesus knows everything about this woman. And instead of shying away from the past that she has and feeling embarrassed at what Jesus knows, she runs back to the village and says, this is the guy who told me everything that I've ever done. He, he might even be the Messiah. Jesus does reveal actually to her that he is the Messiah. God knows everything about you. He cares deeply for you. After making some statements about this, and we move on and we see David start speculating about how far God's presence reaches. And so the thing to see next is that God is always with you. Verse seven to 12. 
David asks this question in verse seven, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? I think it's important to think about the sort of tone that's David, that David's using here. Is David really suggesting that he wants to flee from the presence of God, the God who knows him so well, that knows him so, so deeply? Or is he just speculating? Is he trying to make more of a grander point that actually there is nowhere that he can go where God's presence won't be? And as we continue on, I hope you'll agree that it's the second. Is there anywhere that David can go from God's presence? Well, verse eight, that's concerned with going up and going down. If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If David could ascend up to heaven, it's probably unsurprising that he would still find God's presence there. If David could go down to Sheol and make his bed there, still God's presence would be there. Now, it's probably not the right night. It is definitely above my knowledge uh, to try and explain the word Sheol or, or where that is or what that is, but I've, I found it helpful myself understanding it as hell or the place where people descend to when they die. Um, it isn't a complete or it's not the second death, uh, but it is quite a grim place. However, God ultimately is still in control and has authority over it. It's the opposite of ascending to the heavens. Even if David goes down to a place of evil and makes his bed there, still God's presence is with him. It's not that God's presence will even have to catch up with David or even follow David to wherever he goes, but if David could get to these places, he would be found, or he would find God's presence already there. So that's the up and down. And verse nine talks about the east and the west. It takes a little bit of work to get here, but this is what David's talking about. The wings of the morning and the uttermost parts of the sea. And the wings of the morning, I guess, is this imagery of dawn breaking, of the sun rising, of the light filling the skies. Um, we might get graced with that tomorrow and, and you'll know what I mean. But when the sun rises in the east, and remember Japan, land of the rising sun, that's what we're talking about. We've got the east and, and it rising there. The uttermost parts of the sea then, well, that's going to refer to the farthest reaches of the Mediterranean from where David lived, which in that case was west. And if you're a flat earther here tonight, you'll know that if you keep sailing west, you will fall off the earth eventually. Um, I studied geography, and I'm a round earther, um, just to lay that out there. And so from farthest east to farthest west, even if David could zoom across the entire world as quick as the sun's light, can travel across. He still can't get away. Verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. He's speculating if he can get away from or flee from God's presence, and the answer is no. He can't go up, he can't go down, he can't go east, and he can't go west. His last suggestion then in verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, if David can't escape God's presence, well, what about hiding? It's a pretty logical su suggestion. If he can't get away, what about hiding? But even that's useless. Because even though it seems like a good idea trying to hide in the dark, we all know how hard it is to find things that are in the dark. David was quite good at hiding in the dark, actually. Um, we're we're going to look a little bit later about how David once hid in a cave um, because there were some people wanting to kill him, but we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. But look what he says in verse 12 in response to his idea. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, 
for darkness is as light with you. It seems that there is nowhere to flee from God's presence or even nowhere to hide from God's presence either. Someone who actually didn't just speculate about trying to run from God's presence but actually tried to put it into practice was Jonah. Again, you want to go and have a bit of homework, go to Jonah, read those four chapters, read about how he tried to run away from God but yet God's presence caught up, was already waiting for him, however you think about it. You can't get away from God's presence. There's no way that you can escape from God's presence. There's nowhere that you can go that God's presence won't be there. In the highest points of your life, if you're there now, God's presence is with you. In the lowest moments, if you're there now, God's presence is with you. If you try to run away, if you try to hide away, God's presence is still with you wherever you go. Again, this is a really incredible reminder for our own lives. It's, it's not a negative thing that God would be hounding us down or, or pestering us 24-7 with his presence around us. It's not that at all. He cares for you and he knows you. Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God's presence is there to protect and guide you. God knows you. God is always with you. We can maybe ask, why is this? Why can these two things be true? We're going to see how it's because God made you. David kicks off verse 13 by saying, for you formed my inward, inmost parts. I love this little phrase, for you. Provides a bit of explanation, it provides a bit of meaning for how God knows David so deeply and how God's presence can never leave David. This little word for connects, I think, these big ideas together. David's saying, God, how do you know me so deeply? How come I can never, ever flee from your presence? Well, it's because you formed me. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. The God that knows David, the God that is always with David, is the God that made David. God makes people on purpose. Of course, it doesn't literally mean that we throw out everything that we know scientifically about how babies are made and how they grow in the womb or anything like that. The Bible, of course, isn't a textbook where we come and ask all of our, our how questions. How does this happen in our life? How can we explain this? But rather, the Bible answers the why questions. Not how are we made as humans, but why do we exist as humans? Well, God formed us. David gives this beautiful image of being knitted together in his mother's womb. Of course, this isn't literal, but isn't what he means very clear to see. Consider the granny um, or the young person um, who knits. Every stitch that goes on is there on purpose. Time is spent in creating something beautiful. It certainly doesn't form by itself. It requires the work of a creator to knit something together. The Lord knitted David. And verse 14 then, the result is rightly to praise David says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. What a wonderful thing that we see on fridge magnets and coasters all the time. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. But that is an incredible thing for David to praise God for. He's been crafted and made by God in an incredible way. 
God doesn't just knit people together for the sake of knitting as if he's producing hundreds and hundreds for a fundraiser. He's invested and he cares deeply for each one. And then what we see is even before that knitting process, before the forming process even begins, God cares. If you keep reading on, verse 15, 16, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God was able to see David as he was being formed, secret and hidden to the outside world. In fact, even before the process began, God saw David when he was completely unformed and God had already laid out path and a purpose for his life. Now, whatever your understanding of scripture is here tonight, whether you're, you're comfortable nodding your head and agreeing that David's whole life was, was marked out, completely predetermined, down to the minute details, or rather if we have a path laid out that we get freedom to make the wise and unwise choices along the way, I wonder can you unite with me and see that God is in control either way. God made you, God formed you in the womb, carefully, purposefully, intricately knitted you together. Even before you were conceived, you were an unformed substance that God saw and God knew and God was laying out a purpose for. God cares about you so much. He loves you. You're valuable to him. And you see that in verse 17, 18. How precious are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. So God knows you. God is always with you. God made you. And finally, God hears you. Now, having just read all that we've read so far, you may think that this final section is really odd. David's been marveling at how deeply God knows him and is so glad that he cannot flee from God's presence, even if he tried. And he's praised God that he's been intentionally and intricately made. I think David has a very good understanding of God and also has a very good understanding of how he relates to God. But he pours out his heart, and I want to read these verses again, 19 to 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. I think a bit like asking, I think a bit when, when David was asking, where shall I go from your spirit? I think we've got to ask a similar question of David's tone here. Have the last 18 verses all just been all, have been about buttering up the Lord in order to bring this request to get rid of his enemies? Is David trying to form some sort of judgment committee alongside God? I don't think David is trying to suck up to God. He hasn't been twisting his arm for the last 18 verses before shrewdly throwing out this request. Because when you read the final two lines, I think that makes it really clear. David requests, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, 
and lead me in the way everlasting. I think after all that David has confessed and declared before the Lord, after pouring out his, and then he, sorry, he pours out his heart about his enemies, he's inviting God in the present tense to search him again and to know his heart. Remember the beginning of the psalm was the past tense, you have searched me and known my heart. I think we see David being very, very humble before the Lord. He invites that God would try him like a court, judge him, if you will, and know his thoughts. Is David's heart pure? Is he wrong in what he asks for? Or is he right for, to ask for what he has? Lord, see if there be any grievous, any bad or terrible way in me. Whether there is or there isn't, lead me in the way everlasting. It's very humble. It's so submissive to, to God's uh, leading. He opens himself up to be examined and is prepared to be taught and led wherever God wants that to be. So what about his request? What about his cry in verse 19 to 22? If God will search him, if God will examine him and try him like David asks, what's God gonna find? I wonder is David's cry as scandalous as it seems? Is it really that bad? Let me say straight away that I'm, I'm talking about the heart of what David's saying. It is very rough around the edges, as David says it, but at its heart, what we see is David showing his distaste and his feelings toward evil. This seems to be a really personal, a very intimate psalm, one where David could be praying to himself in privacy as opposed to declaring it or singing it out to all others. You get that feeling of intimacy in the first 18 verses. And so when it comes to verse 19, it, it comes across as a place of groaning and a place of honesty before the Lord rather than demanding it or drumming up support or, or convincing others to believe the same. David essentially wants to see those who do evil receive the judgment for what they've done. We can't shy away from the reality that God will judge evil and sin in the end. God is patient right now toward those who are sinful those who oppose him, but he certainly won't forget about all that they have done and merely sweep it under the carpet. God hates sin, and in the end, he's gonna judge each person accordingly. If they're found to be sin sinful, if they're found to be turned against him, rebellious, evil, or whatever else you might wanna say, then God's righteous and his just judgment will fall on that person. By contrast, the, the hope and the amazing news of the gospel is that you can receive grace, you can for, receive forgiveness of sin from Jesus. You can be seen as righteous, you can be fully resurrected in the end and dwell with God forever. And in the end, there will be no more sin. There'll be no more evil to groan about. There'll be no more sadness, no more tears, death, hurt, pain, suffering, trial, whatever else because God will have dealt and his judgment will have come on evil and sin. In this section, we see David's raw, unfiltered heart to see God's judgment perhaps come early. Essentially saying, Lord, why don't you speed up the process? If it's gonna happen eventually, well, let's get on with it. But David is not the judge. Even though his points might seem logical, David is not the judge, God is. And I think David knows this. 
He's shown us in his life this awareness that it's not his role to accelerate the will of God or to take matters into his own hands. I talked about David hiding in a cave in 1 Samuel 24, and we know that David has been anointed to become the king of Israel, but Saul is still the king. And Saul's actually searching for and trying to kill David, and so David's fled. He's gone to hide. David, in this instance, is hiding in a cave with all of his men, and David has the chance to kill Saul. Saul comes into the cave to relieve himself where David and his, and his men are. David has the chance to take matters into his own hand, to accelerate the will of God, to get rid of Saul and become king. After all, he is going to be king eventually. David's men encourage him. They say, here is the day which the Lord said to you. Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do with him as you seem good to do. But David doesn't kill Saul that day. Rather, he gets so close without being spotted cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. And as Saul leaves, David shouts out to him, Saul, he's holding up the bit of cloth. Saul, I could have killed you. People say that I want to kill you so that I can become king, but that's up to the Lord. David had told his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. It's a small L, he's talking about Saul. To put out my hand against him, that's not right, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. David knew that he was anointed to be king of Israel, but he also knew the Lord had anointed Saul. He doesn't take judgment into his own hands. Though he may want to, he trusts the Lord. Could there be something similar going on here? He reveals his heart for God's judgment to fall on evil. He makes some very rash and very strong requests for God to slay the wicked. And he says how he hates those who hate God. But he doesn't stop there. He pleads with God to search him again, to know his heart, to try him, to know his thoughts, and to see what David's motives really are. Are they pure? Are they righteous? Or are they misguided? Are they sinful? David submits to the Lord and is willing to be led in the way everlasting. And God hears David's cry, hears your cry. Um, when, when your deepest heart is uncovered, when your heart is raw and it's unfiltered, when it may sound shocking, God will still hear you. Your heart may be in the right place, but the way it's coming out might be all wrong. You've got to remember you're not the judge. You want to call for judgment on others or evil or on evil around you. It's in that moment to take a step back and to remember perhaps all that we as, as followers of Jesus have been saved from. Jesus took our place on the cross so that we wouldn't have to deal with God's judgment of sin and the evil in our lives. Frequently resubmit yourself, your heart and your thoughts before the Lord. Like David, ask that God would search you again and test your thoughts and ask that he would lead you forward. God knows you. God is always with you. God made you and God hears you. And as we come to sort of wrap all of this up tonight, I pray ultimately that you are encouraged. This is a wonderful psalm. 
an incredible psalm. But know that the God of the universe knows you deeply and he cares a lot about you. And that's wonderful. You cannot escape his presence, even if you try, or even if you try to hide, whether you go up or down, east or west, or try to hide in darkness, his presence is there. God made you, he made you on purpose, intricately formed you, knitted you together, knew you and prepared your life while you were an unformed substance, before you were even conceived, and that is incredible. He is more more than capable of being in control of your life. And the last thing then, perhaps take all of those things as confidence as you bring your prayers and share your heart before the Lord. We are not perfect. We may think that we make perfect sense or logic or reasoning to the Lord, but you've got to have the humility to ask, God, search my heart, test my thoughts, and lead me forward. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Let's pray together to close. Lord God, help us to take on board the words of this psalm. Would all of the incredible declarations of, of your glory and your power and your wonder, would they be things that, that bless us and encourage us? I pray that they are things that we can take in to our lives every day. Keep them really close to your hearts and, and be ready to, to speak them out loud, be ready to share them with others, be ready to pray them over ourselves time and time again. Lord, would you forgive us when our cries to you are, are misguided, when our motives are all wrong? Lord, when we put ourselves in the center uh, as the judge and push you to the side? God, I ask each one of us in the quietness of our hearts tonight, this evening, tomorrow, every day, perhaps this week ahead, give us all the humility to pray as David did, to search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. And Lord, lead me in the way everlasting. We thank you for the help that your Holy Spirit gives us day by day. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.